The text for the sermon this afternoon is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Let us read that again. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The sermon that I'm about to read is from the hand of Reverend John Van Popta. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon our theme and points are as follows. The king declares that the poor get his kingdom. We will consider the king, his citizens, and his kingdom. The so-called Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, is one of the best known and yet least understood passages of scripture. We know the Beatitudes, those eight or nine Proverbs that we find at the beginning of this body of teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then follows the radical, difficult saying about turning the other cheek, giving up one's coat, of love for enemies, about fasting or worrying, and narrow and wide gates. There is so much here, passages we know and love, but often many of these sayings of the Lord are a mystery an enigma, a riddle. They are not always clear to us. These are the words of the king to his people. But his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom, his is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we are so often of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ stands in the middle of the world, the middle of history, and contradicts the ideas and mentalities of the world. He rejects popular opinion. He speaks differently. And so when he claimed to be the fulfillment of prophecy, his own town scorned him and cast him out. He was rejected by his own people, by his own family. His own brothers, they could not stand it that this local carpenter claimed to preach and teach with authority from heaven. And he came teaching and preaching of the kingdom of God. When the leaders of the community, the Pharisees and the scribes, came walking onto the scene... And when the common people stood back, impressed by these wealthy, well-dressed, knowledgeable, influential men, then Jesus said to them, You are whitewashed graves. When he had an opportunity to eat and drink with the rich and famous, the powerful, the important, he rather turned away and sought out the hated tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner, and spoke to them the words of salvation and of free grace. When he walked into the temple and saw the wealthy wheeler-dealers selling livestock for the sacrifices and exchanging foreign coin for temple currency, he was not impressed. He made a whip out of pieces of rope. He chased everyone out. He said, you are thieves, robbers. Get out of my father's house. Get out now. The Lord Jesus often spoke and acted in startling ways. He often took an unexpected approach to teach to the people and situations. We find the same in the Sermon on the Mount. Here too, he contradicts common opinion. He rejected popular practice. He contrasted his teaching with that of the theology profs. He criticized the behavior of the smug and wealthy. 
He disagreed with the opinions and values of the world, and he taught with authority. When a Jewish rabbi or teacher read the scripture, he stood. But when Jesus taught, he sat down. We can find that as well in Luke 4. The Lord reads from Isaiah, and then he sits down to teach. So also the Lord went up on a mountain and sat down to teach. The crowds were there, as were his disciples. In the previous chapter, we read how the Lord had performed many miracles. Great crowds followed him. They were coming from all over. They poured in from every direction to experience healing or to witness this great wonder. Matthew watches as they stream in from all over, from Judea and Jerusalem in the south, from Galilee in the north, from Decapolis, a Greek province to the northeast, from across the Jordan, from all over they come. They come drawn to this new teacher in Israel from all the lands that God had given to his people through Moses and Joshua, from north and south and from across the Jordan, all sorts of people, all Israel, and many people. It is as if he pulls the crowds along. They are anticipating something. He leads them on to a mountain. And here we have allusions to a second Moses, Moses had led the people out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, through the water, through the wilderness, to the promised land. Here, too, the Lord Jesus has been called from Egypt, Matthew 2, verse 14, being through the water at baptism, Matthew 3, verse 16, through the wilderness, tempted by the devil, 4, verse 1, and now the people from all over the promised land come to hear him, 4, verse 25, to see his mighty signs and wonders. The Lord Jesus Christ came to some unnamed mountain. The scribes and teachers of the law sat in Moses' seat. The Lord has his own. He speaks with authority. His disciples come to him for instruction. And then Matthew gives full weight to Jesus' words. He could hardly express it in more forceful words. Literally, literally we could translate, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, It is as if he sat down, the disciples and the crowd gathered around. Silence fell on the hillside, and before he begins to speak, all is quiet. Important things are going to be said. This is not just any beginning. This is not just any speech. This is not just any sermon. Now, now is the time to listen. This is the instruction for all kinds of people. It is not instruction for just a few. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And nor is this just a take-it-or-leave-it advice session. No. The Lord Jesus Christ wants to be surrounded by disciples and followers, by all Israel. And every listener must learn how to become a good disciple. But how does this work? How can this happen? Then we hear the Sermon on the Mount. And before we begin to work our way through it, we need to understand a few things about them. We cannot understand the parts without understanding the whole. We cannot understand the part on turning the other cheek without understanding where it fits in with the whole. We cannot understand the part about forgiveness without understanding the whole. And we must understand this about the whole. The Sermon on the Mount is meant for all Christian people, for each one of us. It is a perfect picture of the life in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is essential, essentially in each one of Jesus' disciples. Those who follow him. 
The kingdom, the reign of the king, is primarily that which is within us. It is that which governs and controls the heart and mind and outlook of life. In Jesus, the kingdom of God had come. It is in our midst. For the kingdom of God is his rule over our lives. It is not some place. It is God's sovereignty over you. By his spirit and word, he rules over his people. You cannot say of the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will be a Christian. Rather, it is like this. Because by God's grace, you are Christians, live like this. This is how Christians are meant to live. This is how we ought to live because of God's grace, because of his rule, because of his word. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a set of rules or laws to follow. It is a description of a way of life. It describes what Jesus Christ wants his people to be like. As his spirit and word work renewal and restoration, the Sermon on the Mount describes a man, a woman, a disciple of the Lord Jesus, who is being renewed and transformed by grace. The Sermon on the Mount is not some ethical or moral code, some new law to obey. No, it is a description of those who live under the gracious kingship of Christ who are blessed in his covenant, who know the Lord Jesus, who are his disciples, and who follow him closely, not at a distance like Peter, who denied his Lord. And then we begin to understand better why we should try to live this way, why we should study this passage. The Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, died so that you could. He died that we might live this way. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus 2, He gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He died that we might be eager to live the Sermon on the Mount. We must also understand that these words of the Lord Jesus show me the absolute need for regeneration, for new birth. And then the opening verses of this Sermon of Jesus crush me to the ground. They confront me with the absolute need to be born again. They expose my utter helplessness. These words, this teaching of the Lord, exposes my need, gives me hope, grants me grace. Another reason to study this Sermon on the Mount is that those who learn it and love it and then live it are truly blessed. Face this Sermon of Jesus. Let its demands confront you. Let its implications confound you. Let its simplicity surround you. Let us all do that as God's new Israel, as his new people. Take these words of Jesus seriously. They are life or death to us. But we need to move on yet this afternoon. For what kind of thing does the sermon of Jesus cover? Blessed. We need to turn our attention to the first word, the word blessed. Blessed are. Each of the Beatitudes opens with this word. Blessed. So it is essential for us to know what this word means. We will return to it each time we take up one of the Beatitudes. Blessed. Often in many commentaries, in study Bible notes, in translations, this word is said to mean happy. Happy are the meek, the mourners, the peacemakers, the persecuted, etc. But happiness is an internal, subjective thing. It describes how we feel our own emotion. But to be blessed is to receive something from God. 
It means to receive approval from God, to receive grace from God. This is covenantal language. The blessing of the covenant comes from comes to God's people, and God's people, by His grace and Holy Spirit, are meek, poor, gentle. They are peacemakers and often persecuted. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with what we know as the Beatitudes, the blessings. That is what the Beatitudes mean, blessing. The people of God, thus described, are blessed people, blessed citizens, a people to whom the Lord says, good and faithful servants, enter into my rest. The Lord says, blessed are the... The world says, blessed are the go-getters. Blessed are those who grab every opportunity that comes their way. They'll get something in life. The Lord says, no, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The world says, you've got to be a little ruthless. You've got to look out for yourself. Who cares about the next guy? Step on him if you must. Who cares about whose hands you trample as you climb the ladder of success? Just look out for yourself. Look out for number one. The Lord says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are those who look out for others. The world says, Happy are the party animals. If you know how to have a good time in life, to make the most of it, to party nonstop, you'll be happy. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Lord Jesus teaches us something different from the world's wisdom and common sense. We see this contrast already, right in the opening words of his sermon. Here the Lord says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But who ever heard of that? Poor people getting a kingdom? How can it be that poor people are blessed? I notice that the Lord does not say, The poor will be blessed later. He does not say, The poor in spirit will be happy later. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit now. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Imagine that. The world says, blessed are the rich, the intelligent, the influential. They get the kingdoms, the power, and the glory. But God doesn't work that way. Jesus says, the poor, the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. In the kingdom of heaven, paupers will become princely people. Beggars become kings and queens. Who ever heard of that? But the wisdom of God is wiser than man. Even the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. For God grants good gifts to whom he will. This is the message that he brought as he preached in the synagogues. His program was to preach liberty to captives, sight to the blind, He came to announce the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. He came to preach, to preach good news to the poor. The Lord Jesus said in Luke 4, quoting from Isaiah, that he had come to preach good news to the poor. He came to evangelize the poor. We have the same here today. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, that is. God is the one who blessed It is he who grants good things and goodness. And that blessing comes in the message that the Lord Jesus brings. It comes with the good news that he is preaching. And what is he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Turn your life around. The kingdom of God is coming. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
when the Lord spoke of poverty in spirit, he was not, first of all, speaking of material poverty. He was not speaking about not having any food, clothing, or a roof over your head. Poverty in itself does not open the way into the kingdom of heaven. Nowhere does the Bible say that it is more spiritual to be poor than to be wealthy. Nowhere does it say that God loves you more if you have less material possessions. Nowhere does the Bible teach that the poor are closer closer to the kingdom of heaven than the rich, simply because they are poor. Yes, the Bible does warn the rich and wealthy repeatedly not to place their trust in their earthly possessions, which are all going to be destroyed on the last day. We can learn that from some of the parables of the Lord Jesus. We can learn that from the Psalms. But scripture does not teach that there is a spiritual advantage to being poor. Poverty does not guarantee spirituality. Neither does poverty guarantee salvation. Many have denounced poverty and material possessions, thinking that then they were more deserving of God's blessings. But this, isn't, this is not the case. There is nothing we can do to earn God's blessings. For blessings from God is undeserved. God does not look around and say, Oh, there are those poor people. I will bless them with blessings just because they have so little. This is what the modern liberation theology teaches. God is on the side of the poor and oppressed. It is true that God hates oppression. He hates inequity in the dealings of men. He desires mercy and kindness and humility. But being poor or oppressed or persecuted does not in itself open the way to heaven. Those things do not guarantee blessings or happiness. It is only the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, that gains us admission into the kingdom of heaven. It is only when we embrace Christ in true faith that we find ourselves inside the kingdom. Jesus Christ said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who tremble when they stand before God They say with Isaiah, I am undone. The poor in spirit are those who realize that their hands are empty when they come to God, that they have nothing to offer God. People who are poor in spirit are the humble, the downcasts, those truly sorry for their sins. A person who is poor in spirit may be a very confident person. He might be a very self-assured businessman. There's nothing wrong with that. He might be a skilled craftsman who applies his talents with abilities, with confidence. That's good. Someone who is poor in spirit may be a wife, a mother who confidently and with quiet pride prepares a wonderful meal for her family or is a hostess at a gathering of friends. She might be a teacher or a nurse who is sure about her training and her talents and does the job with full awareness of her abilities and with great satisfaction. People who are poor in spirit may be fine musicians, great athletes, and know that they are. They might be excellent university students and who do what they're good at with vigor and joy. But they also might be the quiet, the unassuming, the shy, the awkward. The poor in spirit may not have a prominent place in the church or community. They might be withdrawn and quiet in the crowd. They may feel that they have few gifts and talents with which to work. But all of these people, the talented, gifted, competent, capable, skillful, qualified, able, 
proficient, self-assured, the shy, the awkward, the unassuming, quiet. If they are poor in spirit, they tremble when they stand before God. When they come into the presence of God, they look at their hands and they see that they are empty. When they come before God, they realize that they are poor, that they are destitute beggars. Whether we are rich or poor, talented or not, self-assured or lacking in self-confidence, we are all poor beggars in the presence of God. When we face God, our self-confidence dissolves. In the presence of the holy God, we feel nothing but a sense of utter poverty of spirit. We recognize that we are in deep trouble. Why? Because of our sins and sinfulness. We realize that we have no excuses to make. We cannot save ourselves. We just look to God for salvation. But at the same time, we recognize that we have no lawful claim to salvation. We realize that God owes us nothing. The word poor, which the Lord Jesus used used here, refers to the poorest of the poor, a completely destitute beggar. That's what we are. We must realize that. We must admit that we are spiritually bankrupt. We must become conscious of our sin, our misery, our lack of any natural redeeming qualities. We have nothing of ourselves to offer to God. We can only stand before God, lift up our empty hands and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, save us. How many of us have had this attitude, this deep sense of their poverty before God, of our guilt and our need for grace? Do we do that? Do you do that? Or do you look at so-and-so and say, what a sinner he is. I'm glad I'm not so bad. To you I say, read the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. The Lord Jesus came as a teacher. He sat down and taught his disciples and the crowds. They too were being called to be disciples. The blessedness of the kingdom, the happiness of the kingdom, is for those who come to the Lord aware of their poverty and plead on his promise of blessing. Such an attitude pleases God. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, we read how the prophet tells us what the Lord says. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then we resist. By nature, we want to reject the idea that we must admit absolute poverty. But we must, resist. we must not resist. Rather, think about the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was poor in spirit, humble and meek. But his poverty was a self-imposed poverty. When he appeared in the likeness of men, he had to empty himself of his glory and riches. He became poor for us. Our poverty is natural. We are born with it. Mankind has been impoverished since he fell into sin. But our Lord took poverty upon himself. He willingly embraced it. He embraced poverty, humility, and total dependence upon someone else. He was the eternal Son of God, God himself. But he did not clutch at the glory of being God. He gave it up. He came to earth in the form of a man. He became a man, one of us. And all the while that he was upon the earth, he depended upon God, his Father. In John 5, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. He was utterly dependent upon the father. That's why he spent hours in prayer, because of his self-imposed poverty, because he had emptied himself. Why did he empty himself? Why did he become poor and dependent? For the salvation of man. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are rich. He makes his people a princess, a prince, all because he became a pauper. He did it all. He emptied himself. He gave himself up to the point where he died on the cross in humility, in weakness, in poverty. He went to the cross with empty hands and those hands were nailed to the cross. Look to Jesus Christ. You too will receive the kingdom of heaven. We only... We look, only, we look only the cross of Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then, with those hands that have been nailed to the cross, he now blesses his church and his people. And he says to those who come with broken, contrite hearts, Yours is the kingdom. You will inherit the kingdom. This is what we can read in Colossians 1. There Paul writes that we are to thank the Father who was who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. We are not qualified in ourselves. It is not what we bring. It is what the Father gives. And what has he done? He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Transferred us to the kingdom, even now, already. Those who are poor in spirit, those who are truly sorry for sins, they are already inheritors with the saints, transferred into the kingdom of his Son. This is for the poor in spirit. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33 tells us that repentance, true repentance, that repentance to which the Lord Jesus calls his people consists of this, to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin, and, note carefully, and more and more to hate sin and flee from it. But there is more. It is also a heartfelt joy in God through Christ. And it is a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. That is the measure of the poor in spirit. True sorrow for our sins. But joy for what we have in Christ. It is a resolve to hate sin and run away from it. And a resolve and a love for living according to God's commandments. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Examine yourself. Are you poor in spirit? Do you have this attitude? The attitude of the man of Psalm 1? The man who does not walk with the wicked, nor stand with sinners, nor sit with scoffers, but who delights to do the will of God. Strive for that. Realize that you are in no position to bring anything at all to God that he should pay you back. In Revelation 3, verse 15, we can read the words of the Lord Jesus. He says to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. 
I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Earlier the Lord said to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Persecution was coming for that church, but the Lord encouraged them and said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is what he counseled the lukewarm church also. Buy from me, he said. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He who conquers, Christ will grant to sit with him on his throne as he himself conquered and sat upon his father's throne. This is the kingdom of God. This is what Christ has obtained for his people. He did so with his precious blood by his death and resurrection. This is what he obtained for you and me. Not what we should be not that we should be rich in ourselves with our own deeds, our own life, but that we should be rich in him. And he will grant us his own crown of life in his kingdom. For there is the kingdom. Amen.